which cultivate our motivation by recalling the kindness that we've received from sentient beings just from the time we were born until now so many people caring for us, helping us growing the food we eat making the clothes we wear teaching us giving us medicine when we're sick so let's really let into ourselves the kindness that we've received and from that let arise spontaneously a feeling of gratitude and a wish to do something beneficial for others in return and from that generate the thought to become a fully enlightened Buddha for the benefit of all beings Sometimes our mind just goes bonkers with doubt, doesn't it? Yeah. It's just like, say something to me and I'll doubt it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's very helpful for us to be able to recognize doubt when it comes in the mind. And for me, it's taken me quite a long time to learn to recognize doubt because usually when this kind of stuff comes up I don't see it as doubt I see it as something's not right you know and it's not correct or it's not trustworthy or it's not accurate or uh, it's not understandable I very seldom you know look at the thing and see oh it's my mind doubting I usually think that there's something in what the topic is that is just not working yeah it has nothing to do with me it's out there an objective existence yeah. but uh, it's quite helpful when just to be able to give this the label doubt yeah and, and to try and play with that a little bit it's like oh there's doubt in my mind hmm yeah and sometimes the doubt is a curiosity where it makes us learn and that's a good kind of doubt you know because it's a kind of curiosity it's like oh you know I heard this word madhyamaka I don't know what it means what does it mean I don't understand it so then that kind of questioning is very good you know it's like oh I want to learn something um, then there's another kind of doubt that is just this kind of 
hopeless doubt, like, you know, it's like, not worthwhile, just this doesn't make any sense, just forget the whole thing, you know? So it's a kind of discouraging doubt. There's another kind of doubt that's the cynical kind that goes, make me believe. See if you can make me believe. I dare you to. You know, what you're saying is total beep, beep, beep. You know, you can't make me believe that rubbish. Okay. So that kind of cynical doubt. So those last two kinds of doubt, that's, that's just ego mind. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, you can tell the energy of the doubt. The energy of the doubt isn't kind of openness, curiosity, I want to learn. It's like, oh, forget it. Or make me, you know. Just the whole energy of the way our mind is. We can tell when that kind of energy is in the mind that the mind's afflicted. Okay? That's under the influence of an affliction at that time. So it's quite helpful to identify that. Yeah? and see that because then that loosens around the, the doubt we don't believe the doubt so much we don't jump into it so much like, and we may find some habits here you know we've been noticing a lot of habits <laughs> this week so far <laughs> yeah so sometimes doubt is a very big habit with us it's uh, you know it gives a certain protection to our ego yeah, we can see it how does it protect the ego? Well, the like hopeless discouraged doubt is, well, it just doesn't work and it's no use and I'm inadequate and the path is inadequate and Buddha doesn't exist and forget the whole thing. So that's very comforting to ego mind. It means I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is sit here and feel hopeless. You know? So ego mind loves that. Yeah, it laughs it up. This is great. Yeah. Or the skeptical doubt, the like, yeah, 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 make me believe that. You know, again, ego mind loves that one. Because again, I don't have to do anything. Yeah, it's all you. You have to make me believe. Yeah, because what you're saying is all rubbish. So, you know, just, you can tell by just the texture, the flavor of the mind that it's not a, it's not a good state of mind. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful, you know, just to identify that and say, well, I don't think I want to follow that attitude. <laughs> you know, I've had that enough in my life. It's not getting me anywhere. It just makes me kind of miserable. So let's press the pause button on its chatter. Or better, let's press the off button. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just shut that mind down because it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Whereas the other kind of doubt is like, hmm, gee, what's my job with the philosophy? Hmm, why would people get ordained? I wonder what that's about. I wonder what you do as a monastic. You know, that kind, that kind of stuff is going to lead you to learn and explore. So that, that's, you know, take the ball and run with that one. Okay? So, um, yeah, somehow that came out of my mouth. I don't know how. Uh, what I wanted to talk about today <laughs> was, uh, you know, continuing from yesterday about 
the, the motivation for our dating. Like I say, that's one of the most important factors because if you have a strong, positive motivation and you've thought about things clearly before your mind's very clear, then afterwards the mind can be quite relaxed. You know, whereas when the motivation isn't clear, um, sometimes I've met some people who get very emotional and it's kind of they're all on fire. Kind of like, I've got to get ordained next Tuesday. Yeah. And, um, and the emotions, the, the uh, motivation isn't so stable. Yeah. And, uh, and they push and they nag. And if you tell them to wait, they say, No, why should I wait? I want to do it right now. My mind's totally virtuous and I might die beforehand. And, um, you know, so, so there's a certain kind of um, pestering, bone shirt quality. I mean, there's just this intense emotion. And, um, you know, and, and so that usually doesn't work out so well. Now, having said that, I must say that, you know, I was one of these people that was like hot on fire and I want to get ordained ASAP. Um, and I think the difference was when my teacher told me to wait, I, I followed his advice and I didn't criticize. And I figured he must know something more than I do. You know? um, which was a wise thing for me to think. Yeah. <laughs> because the moment you think you know more than the person who's going to ordain you, then already you know that it's not going to work well. <laughs> okay. You know, uh, you know, it's like, oh, I know myself better. I should be able to get ordained. What are you telling me no for? You know, I'm going to go to another teacher who's going to do it. Um, so, you know, already the mind's not on real firm standing there. Uh, so uh, the story I'm going to tell you is about, you know, a, a young man. It's a story in the Majinina Kaya, the Middle East Discourses, about a young man who was very much on fire to take ordination. Uh, and, and as the story unfolds, you'll see that although he was on fire, there was a lot of wisdom and forethought behind it. it the, the story comes off as kind of an emotional drama, but, you know, as it progresses, you see uh, his understanding uh, and the, the very pure motivation he had. Okay? So I'm going to kind of tell the story and read a little bit... Um, from, from the sutra. It's called the uh, Ratnapala Sutra. Ratnapala is the name of this young man. And actually, Ratnapala means the, the uh, protector of, um, of jewels. Yeah. So that's what his ordained one, his name, ordained name was. So there was a village, um, and the Buddha, as I told you, you know, wandered throughout northern India. So he was coming. Uh, close to this village um, named Tula Kotika, 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 something. I'm not very good at pronouncing Pali. Anyway, all the um, the Brahmin householders in that town, the Brahmins were the upper class, you know, the religious people had religious power, uh, heard that the Buddha was coming and you know heard of his greatness, and so. You know, they all wanted to go out and 
and hear the Buddha talk. And so, you know, they, they went out and some of them, you know, bowed to the Buddha because they had a lot of respect and some just nodded their head and sat down because they were a little bit more cautious and didn't have so much respect off, off the bat. So among them um, was one young man named Ratnapala and he was the son of the leading clan in that town, okay? So he was the son, you know, kind of like the big shots in town and the son and, you know, all the expectations that were on him uh, from his parents and from the town and everything. Anyway, he went to hear the Buddha. And as he was hearing the Buddha and listening to the Dharma, the thought came that he wanted to ordain. And so he went to the Buddha. And he paid homage and he sat down. And this is what he said to the Buddha. Venerable Sir, as I understand the Dharma taught by the Blessed One, it is not easy while living in a home to live the holy life, utterly perfect and pure as a polished shell. Venerable Sir, I wish to shave off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and go forth from the home life into homelessness. I would receive the going forth under the Blessed One. I would receive the full admission. Okay. So there he is requesting ordination. In a way, this is, there's several stock phrases that you find in some of the Pali Sutras because the sutras were passed down orally for many centuries. And so in certain situations that were similar, they kind of you know, made the words the same in every case. Uh, and so this is in one way, you know, kind of a stock phrase. But it's also, if you listen to it, it's quite profound. It's quite moving, you know. Because he's saying it's not easy while living in a home to lead the holy life utterly perfect and pure as a polished shell. You know, why isn't it easy? Yeah. Well, you have to take care of your family. Yeah. I mean, that's what you've got to do. Yeah. So you have a spouse, you have kids, you've got to go to work and earn money, and then you've got to take care of them. And, you know, taking kids has time, and then you've got to raise them, and you've got to teach them, and you've got to wipe their bottoms and <laughs> do all this kind of stuff. And then there's social obligations. If you live in town, there's, you know, all your friends and... You know, maybe you have belonged to the Rotary Club or the, what was the one you belonged to? Chamber of Commerce or, your, you know, whatever occupation you have. You know, you belong to the Physical Therapist Association of America. And, you know, and then you get this stack of junk mail that's this big that you have to read. Um, you know, and you have to go to meetings and then there's your family life and you've got to go to this wedding and this anniversary and the summer picnic and uh, your professional meetings and then you have to go to PTA meetings for your kids. Your kids aren't doing so well in school so then you have to look at an alternative school and then you have to plant your garden because you have your house and, you know, your house has to look good because what are the neighbors are going to say if your grass is overgrown and... Um, you know, she's a lot of things that you have to do if you have a job and a family and a house. Okay? So that's called the householder life. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? 
and to hold the house and everything that comes with the house. And don't think because you live in an apartment that you're not a householder. It's the same thing, you know, apartment holder too. Okay. So it's not easy because you're distracted by all these things, number one. And number two, it's very easy for your attachment to arise towards these things. You know, there's attachment to your spouse, there's attachment to your kids. You know, if you ever want to see attachment, think of attachment for kids, you know. It starts out incredibly as this in pure, unconditioned love. And then after a while, it's like, my kid. Yeah? And everything that happens to my kid is so important. I don't think many of you are parents. How many are parents? Just Kevin. You should give us a discourse on what it's like to be a parent. Okay? The kindness of the parents and the aggravation of the parents. <laughs> yeah? Um... So it's, you know, there's a lot there because it's very easy for attachment to come up uh, to your reputation, to your wealth, to your family, um, to sex, to, you know, all these kinds of things. And then, of course, the more attachment we have, the more animosity comes up when we can't get what we want. Yeah, because you want to be wealthy and you can't be as wealthy as you want to be. Yeah, and you, you, you know, have this vision of getting married and living happily ever after, and it just kind of doesn't work that way. And you have a child thinking that they're going to be, you know, the next president and the most genius kid there ever was alive, and then they can't tie their shoes, you know. And, and so things just kind of don't work out according to the mind of attachment, and then we get upset and we get aggravated and disappointed and you know and cynical and bitter and and that okay so just the the whole atmosphere becomes difficult to practice it's quite challenging okay now the thing is we don't want to look at the faults of the householder life and say ew I don't want to have that kind of suffering, so I want to get out of here and get ordained, you know, because that's a mind that doesn't want to face what's happening. It's not a mind that's actually seeing the disadvantages of that lifestyle for ordained for your spiritual practice. It's the mind that's saying, oh, if I tried to earn a living, I'm too incapable. I probably couldn't do it anyway. Okay? Are you seeing the difference, Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? You know, the mind that starts out that says, well, you know, I'm going to be a failure at work anyway, and, you know, nobody's going to love me, so I'm not going to get married anyway, and I'm never going to succeed in making any money anyway, so I might as well get ordained. Okay. That kind of aversion with the household life, that's not healthy. Yeah, because that mind is still very much attached to the happiness of this life and particularly attached to our reputation, you know, and, and all these kinds of things. So that's not the kind of aversion we want to have towards householder life. It's the, the kind of aversion we want to have 
is the mind that has a, a very genuine spiritual aspiration really seeing oh I have the human potential to become a Buddha oh there's a way to train my mind and transform myself so I can really become of more benefit to myself and others so it's, it's that mind that really has a positive aspiration and sees well to fulfill my positive aspiration if I live like that it's not going to work it's going to be more difficult okay understanding what I'm saying there okay so um, that's what we want to do when we see the defects of the home life it's, it's got to be a feeling like we want to go towards spiritual development not that we want to run away from society because anyway we can never run away from society because everywhere we go we always live in relationship to society so where are we going to run away from and anyway it's not society that's the problem mm-hmm. yeah it's not it's, it's our feelings inside so that's what we want to work with okay so he's so he is he's paid homage he's kneeled down he's put his palms together and he's requested this and he says I wish to shave off my hair and my beard put on the yellow robe okay so that's standard for you know the wandering mendicants at the at the time of the Buddha okay we cut off our hair because it it symbolizes cutting off ignorance anger and attachment and in particular it symbolizes cutting off vanity because our hair is one of the chief things we get attached to okay. I know that from experience mm-hmm. I had hair down to here when I met the Dharma it had taken me a long time to grow it mm-hmm. yeah I was very attached to it because when I was a little kid I was walking down the street my mom had cut my hair very short and somebody rubbed me on the head and said hi Sonny and I was devastated because they thought I was a boy and so all I wanted to do was have long hair so they would know I was a girl so it took me a while to grow my hair long so I was quite attached to it it was also kind of big and wavy and quite beautiful and it wasn't as when when I was in school you was you know the in thing was to have straight blonde hair yeah and I had curly brown hair but you know so okay in high school I was a failure uh, but you know by the time you got to college and the hippie generation curly brown hair was okay yeah so um, you know uh, you know we shave off our head because it's showing uh, that we're stopping to care about how we look yeah and I love when I, cause sometimes I'm, lo- I'm asked to go into high school classes and give a talk and I love the part where they ask me why I shave my head okay because we all remember what high school is like okay and when you're in high school you want to look like everybody else you know especially the certain class of kids who were all the in kids remember you know of course none of us were yeah. but those other people that are the in kids that we all wanted to be like and uh, you know so here's this group of high school kids and they go, why do you shave your head and I say well because 
what's important to me is being beautiful on the inside not being beautiful on the outside it's looking at me you know like I've never heard anybody say anything like that and then I say well you know if people like me just because of my looks on the outside they're not going to be really stable friends you know uh, and if I spend more time trying to be beautiful on the inside then I know that the friends I have are going to be really stable friends and also I'm going to like myself a lot better and these kids are going you know like wow really you don't care how you look you know unbelievable thing to think when you're 16 yeah but how you look doesn't matter because when you're 16 you know how you look it matters more than anything else on the whole planet okay you know every single pimple is like a national disaster <laughs> so you know you shave off your hair I guess the guys shave off the beard too you know the whole thing is you're not developing an ego identity out of what you look like because you recognize that your physical appearance doesn't really mean much you know you keep your body healthy you keep your body clean but you don't worry about what you look like on the outside because that's not who you are in any way the body's changing and you know what you look like now is not what you're always going to look like I remember my my dad told me he went with my mom to my mom's I, what, I forget what year it was you know some anniversary of high school graduation maybe the 50th year or 40th year or something and he, and he said he was looking at all these like old people and um trying to figure out which high school picture belongs to them <laughs> you know and it's quite amazing when, when you do yeah. I mean we've all looked at pictures of our parents when they're young it's amazing what they used to look like isn't it yeah. and then but then us you know we're always kind of going to look how we look right now we're never going to be old yeah. but um, that might just happen Okay, so you shave off your hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and go forth from the home life into homeless. Okay? So that's ordination. You go from the home life, the householder life, with your social life, your attachments, your responsibility, the enjoyments you have due to having so much wealth, the comforts you have due to having wealth. You leave that behind and you go into homelessness. Okay. Now, the reason it's called homelessness is at the time of the Buddha, you know, there were so many wandering ascetics around, and they didn't have a fixed residence. Now, like I was telling you yesterday, they went into a village and collected alms, and the climate in India was such that, you know, you could live outside very easily, no sweat. Yeah. Well, actually, you sweated because it was quite hot. But, you know, it was really no problem living outdoors. And there was plenty of space. And, and you know, there, there weren't loitering laws and, you know, no trespassing fines. And 
things like that. Now, kind of living like that is a bit difficult, because you know, you're trespassing on private property and you can't sleep in a public park because you're loitering. And if you go from house to house with your alms bowl, people are going to think you're soliciting or they're going to think you're nuts or, you know. But in ancient India, you can live like that. And then as I described yesterday, gradually, slowly, the community began to become more settled. You know, and then the community itself began to own, own property. Not the individual monastics, but the community owned the property. But because still it was the community owning the property, it's not your own property. Yeah. And so that's really a thing in monastic training. We live in a room and we may call it my room, but it's not our room. Yeah. In Zen monasteries, what they do, some of them anyway, every six months, everybody picks up and moves rooms. Just so that you don't get attached to the room you're living in. And so it's part of your monastic training. Whatever furniture is in your room, that's the furniture you live with, you know. If you're doing a certain kind of job and you need something, you can see if it's available. But none of this thing of my personal preference, you know. Actually, I would like a quilt that's pink, not the green one, please. Yeah. And I would like, uh, you know, a chair that looks a little bit more like that, not a chair that looks like this. And I would like a big rug in the room, not a small rug. You know, we try and get over some of these things, these kind of preferences. And, you know, the bedspread doesn't match the rug. And it doesn't match the color of the walls. And, you know, I mean, I want my room to be color coordinated. And I want a very beautiful altar cloth, much nicer than anybody else's altar cloth in their rooms. And I want an altar that looks as I design it, you know. And so, we, you know, we all, there's so many ways in which we make something ours. Yeah. So, um, you know, part of, of living in a monastic community is, you know, trying to get over that. And so, you know, whatever furniture there is, whatever bed there is, you know, if you can't sleep and you're horribly uncomfortable, then you say something, okay? Um, if you're freezing at night and there are not enough blankets, you say something. But, you know, all these kind of preferences that we have, you know, pity, uh, petty likes and dislikes, that, that a householder would resolve by going out and buying something. Okay? In the monastery, we don't do that. And especially because we really are dependent on the lay people, and so what people give us to use, we should use. You know, unless we really can't use it because it's not suitable for, you know, the kind of things that, that we need, okay? So we try and develop a spirit of contentment with, you know, the furniture, with the color of the rug, with the, you know, these kinds of things. Um, toiletries is another area where uh, we try and develop contentment. Uh, I went in the, in the women's uh, shower uh, yesterday. There were three different bars of soap there. At the beginning of the course, there was only one bar of soap. I don't know where the two other bars came from. And I'm not sure why they were there, but our practice is there's one bar of soap and you use it. 
Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes in the householder life, you like a certain kind of shock. And you like a certain kind of hand lotion. And you like a certain kind of shampoo. And you like a certain kind of towel. Yeah, you know how we all have our preferences in these kinds? And we even like a certain kind of toilet paper. And some of us like the toilet paper to go this way, and some like the toilet paper to go this way. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? We have opinions about all these things. And when you put on the new roll of toilet paper, because you're really trying to practice bodhicitta, but of course you put it on the direction you like the toilet paper to roll, and then the person who comes after you reverses. <laughs> oh, just when I'm being considerate and putting a new roll on, they change the direction. Oh, what suffering? You know? And so you watch this, don't we? Don't we? We in the community, we watch all of this come up. Okay. And I don't like the color of the bar of soap. Yeah. And, or I don't like the texture. I don't like this about it. I don't like that about it. Okay, the towel's too rough. It's too small. It has a stain on it. It's too big. Yeah. Uh, it's not soft enough. It, you know, it's like... So these are the kinds of things that we try and use as opportunities to train with. Okay, so this is not doing some kind of ascetic trick. Yeah, we're not drying ourselves with nettles or something. (laughs) 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 We're looking at how the mind has all these preferences about what we like and how we like things to be, and we're learning to get over that because these are all sorts of attachments, you know. So, uh, you know, this is part of going into the homeless life in that the the themes belong to the community. They don't belong to me. Yeah? And I can't, can't short order what the community should have just because that's my preference. You know, if it's something that that would benefit the whole community, you know, we need a certain computer for the entire community or something like that. That's one thing. But not, you know, I want this because it just makes it my home or something, yeah? So you're going into the homeless life. So homelessness represents trying not to be attached to all these kinds of things. Yeah, and really learning to live in community is very good training for that. And and I could see like when we were moving into the abbey, and different people would come stay with us, and they would all uh, re-design the kitchen. Yeah, and (laughs) to the point where we had to say, please don't you know, change the drawers because one person would put the silverware here and the pots there and then the next person who came would move them around and, you know, it's all these ways in which we tailor things to, to what we like, yeah. And so just trying to, we have to get over that, yeah. And we might put forth suggestions on how things can be done more efficiently but we can't be super attached to them, mm-hmm. 
Okay. So he's asking to go forth from the home life into the homelessness. I would receive the going forth. The going forth, the Tibetan term for that is Rabjang in, um, in Sanskrit is Pravraja. And it's, it means going forth from home to homeless. Okay? So it's, this, it's included in the ceremony in which you become a novice. But it's one particular stage in the novice ceremony nowadays. I think at the beginning, you know, when the Buddha was alive, going forth was full ordination. But then as things went on, uh, for example, that you got these different levels of ordination. So at the beginning, like I said, it was just going forth, and that was your full ordination. And what happened was... Um, they ordained some little boys, and the little boys were, were crying. You know, they were seven or eight, and they were, you know, fully ordained monks, and they were crying. And, um, and so, the, uh, I think it was even the Buddha's dad, he, he asked the Buddha, please don't ordain people under a certain age, and ask their parents' permission first. Okay? So from that developed the novice ordination, for you know the young children because it's not so strict it's not as strict and it's a way for you to take ordination and begin the training and then after some time you take the full ordination but anyway so the going forth eventually evolved into this one part of the ceremony for taking the novice vows but he's requesting the going forth under the blessed one under the Buddha um, and then I would receive the full admission. So that's becoming fully ordained. He's requesting that as well. Okay? Now, you'll note here that Ratnapala went and he bowed down and he knelt and he put his hands together and he spoke very respectfully to the Buddha. He didn't go in and uh, plop himself down, sitting higher than the Buddha, and look and say, I want to ordain. Can you arrange a ceremony? Okay? And this is very important because this is all part of monastic training. And sometimes we Americans, we feel like we're entitled to anything. I want something and it's your job to provide it for me. Yeah. So we often don't have this idea of, you know, we have to go in respectfully and humbly and request ordination. You know, instead, instead we think of ourselves as consumers And, well, ordination is something I want, so it's just like going into, you know, into Fred Meyers and, you know, I want an ink blotter. Where are they? You know, I want ordination. Where do I go? Well, that kind of idea, that kind of thought, that's not part of having a monastic mind. Yeah? And this is really something that we have to look out for because we're brought up in such a consumer society where as the consumer we are right and we can demand things from whoever is providing the service because if you don't provide the service well I'm going to go to somebody else and that's a loss for you okay you know your airlines doesn't treat me right well I'll go to another airline your car company doesn't treat me right well I'll give my business to somebody else so we go into the Dharma life in the same way. You know, I'm the consumer. You know, it's the teacher in the community who should practice student devotion towards me. 
and you know give me what I want uh, because if they don't well there's a thousand donut teachers and I'll just go somewhere else where they realize you know how fortunate they are to help me there <laughs> yeah so that kind of mind is not how to train a monastic mind clearly yeah so this whole thing of humility and requesting and really, I mean, we are requesting admission into the monastic order. This is not our right that we can demand. Yeah. We, are, we have to show that we are qualified vessels to be able to receive the ordination. Yeah. And we have to show to whoever we're requesting for ordination, you know, the sincerity of our purpose, our, our ability, uh, you know, to go through some hardship and to, to really sincerely want to practice. Yeah? So it's not a consumer mentality at all. So this is new for us. It's very new. Yeah? Okay. So then Buddha responds and says... Um, have you been permitted by your parents, Ratnapala, to go forth from the home life into homelessness? Okay. Um, and Ratnapala says, no, I haven't. Now, he didn't have his parents' permission. And so then the Buddha said, please go speak to your parents and get your parents' permission. So, um, so he says, I shall see to it that my parents permit me to go forth from the home into the homeless life. So then he um, arose from his seat, he paid homage to the Buddha, and he departed, keeping the Buddha on his right side. Okay, we have our right arm exposed. In ancient India, you know, you used to circumambulate things, and on your right side, you know when we circumambulate statues, we always have our right side towards them. Well, ancient Indian people would come to see the Buddha, and they would circumambulate you know if they were sitting in front and had to go around they would go around clockwise like that because we were right side towards him okay so uh, so Ratnapala went back you know to his home and requested his parents for ordination and uh, you know said that it's hard to do to practice as a lay person and this is what I want to do and his parents replied Dear Ratnapala, okay, you are our only son, dear and beloved. You have been raised in comfort, brought up in comfort. You know nothing of suffering, dear Ratnapala. Okay, even in case of your death, we would lose you unwillingly. So how could we give you our permission to go forth from the home life into the homelessness while you are still living? So the parents are saying, you know, you're our only kid. We love you to death. If you died, it would be an incredible grief for you. But how could we give you up? In death, we have no control over. But how could we willingly give you up, you know, as our son, our heir, the one who's going to carry on the name, the one who's going to give us grandchildren, the one who's going to take care of us when we're old, the one who's the recipient of the whole purpose of our life, why we work so hard to get the American dream. How can you leave? You know, this is what his parents are saying to him. And so Ratnapala requested a second time. Got the same answer. He requested a third time. 
his parents reside, said the thir- same thing. So then Ratnapala lay down there on the bare floor saying, Right here I shall either die or receive the going forth. So he upped the stakes. He said, I am serious about this, Mom and Dad. You know, I want to do this. And I'm either going to die lying here because I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to get up. You know, or you're going to give me your permission to, to be ordained. So his parents, can you imagine? Yeah, what would you do as a parent? Yeah? So his parents said to him, you know, again, you know, you've been brought up in comfort. You know, because they were concerned. You know, you have the American dream. What do you know of, you know, eating one meal a day? What do you know of, you know, not sleeping on on the kind of bed you want? What do you know of living in a community with all sorts of people? What do you know about, you know giving up your, you know, working for a career and having your own money to spend as you wish. What do you know about not having a car, you know? It's like our parents say, you know, you've been brought up in the American life. What are you talking about? You can all go live otherwise. So his parents said the same thing they said before to him, you know, that you've been raised in comfort, you know, nothing of suffering, you know. Not get up, dear Ratnapala, eat, drink, and amuse yourself. Okay. Well, eating, drinking, and amusing yourself, you can be happy enjoying sensual pleasures and making merit. So, listen, kid, don't go to extreme. You know, eat, drink, get married, have kids, have a social life. And, you know, we have lots of money. You can still be generous and you can make merit. And one day a month you can go and take precepts and, you know... Just don't go, you don't, don't go to such an extreme. Just live a regular, ordinary life. Go to your Dharma center once or twice a week. Go to retreat once a year. It's okay, you know. Don't, don't be such an extremist. Okay? Yeah? And that kind of sounds right, doesn't it? It's like, oh, if I did that, then I make my parents happy. And, you know... My parents are a very strong object of karma. So if I displease my parents, that's creating bad karma. And I'm trying to train as a bodhisattva to be a benefit to sentient beings. So it will be very beneficial to my parents if I stay there and live the kind of life they live. Uh, you know, they lead and the kind of life they want me to lead. And they are right. You know, our family has money. I can be generous and make offerings to temples and Dharma centers and monastics and, you know, and I can go to the Dharma center. I can go on retreat. I can have an altar in our house. I can sponsor the publishing of Dharma books. I, you know, that way is, it sounds good. I can please my parents and I can still practice Dharma. Sounds good, right? Yeah, I mean, his parents are presenting a reasonable alternative. And they say, we do not permit you to go forth from the home life into homelessness. And again, they say, you know, if you were to die, we would grieve beyond measure. So how could we give you up voluntarily? Okay. So Ratnapala, yeah, he remained silent. He didn't say anything. 
think of the pressure he's under you know and his parents are giving him this very good argument yeah I mean my grandma didn't know she doesn't she didn't know what a Buddhist was or ordination or anything all she knew was that I was leaving my husband yeah and it was like how can you do that if you don't have a husband and you don't have kids who's going to take care of you when you're old you know genuine concern I don't want you to suffer when you're old you've got to have a family to take care of you when you're old yeah. so they give you all these kinds of arguments and you've got to really think about them because on one level well it's right if I don't have a family nobody's going to take care of me when I'm old yeah and maybe I am being too too extreme and you know nothing's wrong with being a householder and practicing that way and enjoying the world nothing's wrong with it it's not non-virtuous and still do some virtuous things and make everybody in my family happy and still practice the Dharma yeah that's good okay but that's not how Ratnapala thought he just kept lying there silently so the second time his parents said this he didn't say anything third time his parents said the same thing he remained silent okay so Ratnapala's parents are they're kind of getting desperate now so they go to his friends and they say dears the clansman Ratnapala has lain down on the bare floor having said right here I shall either die or receive the going forth come dears go to the clansman Ratnapala and say to him friend Ratnapala you are your parents only child you know and and so, so now the parents are going to his friends and say come and say to him what we're saying to him because he's not listening to us because well he's our son and he doesn't listen to his parents you know but you're his friends so they might, he might listen to you okay so then the, the, the friends go yeah and they um, and they go to him and they say you know you're your parents only son and you're dear and beloved I and mean, you've been raised in comfort and look you know Ratnapala you're our buddy it's, it's too hard for you being a monastic just you know chill out fellow um, and you know we go eat and drinking and we can go to the golf course together we can go to the baseball games together um, you know your parents don't want you to go forth from the home from the home life into the homelessness because they love you and they care about you and and you know how could they possibly grant you permission to do that and so you know just friend you know kind of cool down okay Ratnapala didn't say anything then his friends say the same thing again Ratnapala's silent then they say it a third time doesn't say anything okay and so then the friends have to go back to the parents and they say mother and father you know we're not getting through to him we can't get through to him okay and they say to him now if you do not give him your permission to go forth from the home life into homelessness 
he will die there his friends were saying to the parents but if you give him your permission you will see him after he has gone forth and if he does not enjoy the going forth what else can he do but return here okay so look mom and dad you know give him your permission because that way you'll get to see him after he's ordained and anyway you know he's probably a softie <laughs> he'll, he'll you know he'll go through his phase and do it for a year or two he'll get the energy out he's just going through a phase and then after that he'll decide he doesn't like it and he'll come back home again okay so don't you know make it into a power struggle between you and him just give him your permission and you know and make the best of it and he'll probably come back okay so they counsel the parents give him your permission and so then the parents said yeah you're right you know let's let's do that let's try that so they gave him permission to go from the home life into the homeless life okay with the condition that he must visit his parents okay they didn't say when they didn't say for how long but they said we give you permission to go forth but when you've gone forth you must visit your parents okay they didn't want to lose him completely Okay, so then Ratnapala got up and he regained, he ate and he regained his strength and then he went to the Buddha and he again paid homage and knelt down and he said, Venerable Sir, I have my parents' permission to go forth from the home life into homelessness. Okay, and so at that point then the Buddha ordained him. And it was interesting because uh, as because of Ratnapala's incredible persistence and his willingness to to face death, you know, in order to be ordained, um, the Buddha later uh, said that he was the foremost of his disciples who had gone forth in in faith. Yeah, there's different uh, of of the Buddha's disciples who were foremost in different areas. Okay, and Ratnapala, he was foremost in having gone forth with faith, because he was just so completely sincere, and he was going to do it, and he risked his life to do it, because he was serious about that. Okay, so then Ratnapala was ordained, and he um, and you know after a while he left that village and with all the monks went from village to village um, you know as a, wand- as a wanderer and he came to uh, Shavasti and he uh, lived at Shavasti in Jetta's Grove and that's a Pindicus Park and uh, while he was dwelling there apparently it took him maybe 12 years something like that and he was you know um, he was going for Arhatship but before long dwelling alone of course he was with the community of, of monastics because he was at the monastic park okay withdrawn from sense pleasure um, diligent ardent and resolute the venerable Ratnapala by realizing for himself with direct knowledge here and now 
entered upon and abided in that supreme goal of the holy life for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. He directly knew birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being in samsara. And the venerable Ratnapala became one of the arhats. Okay? So, you know, he kept his intention. He did it. He practiced well. He became an arhat. So then, after he became an arhat, he did what had to be done. You know, he got out of samsara. He went to the Buddha and he said, Venerable Sir, I wish to visit my parents if I have your permission. And so the Buddha could directly see, you know, the level of practice of Ratnapala, knew he was an arhat, knew that he wasn't going to backslide um, and give up the training and return to household life. And so he said to him, now is the time, Ratnapala, uh, to do as you think fit. So he gave him permission to go back and visit his family. So then Ratnapala rose from his seat, paid homage to the Buddha, and departed, keeping the Buddha on his right. And then he um, set his resting place in order, because he was living in the monastery there, and taking his bowl and his outer robe, he went back uh, to wander toward Tulakotata. Kotita, okay, towards his home village. So he, you know, was a monk, shaved head, he had his outer robe, he had his alms bowl with. And he arrived there and stayed in, you know, the king's garden because the kings had gardens that, you know, the wandering ascetics could stay in. And when it was morning, he dressed and then he took his bowl and his outer robe because when they go on Pindapod on alms round, they have their outer robe on and their, their bowl. And he went into the town for alms. And as he was wandering for alms, he came to his parents' house. Okay. So at that time, his father was sitting in the hall of the central door having his hair fixed, you know, having his hair dressed. And when he saw the Venerable Ratnapala coming in the distance, he said, you know, to the hairdresser, our only son, dear and beloved, was made to go forth by these bald-pated recluses. You know? In other words, he just had disdain for you know the Buddhist followers you know here's our cherished son and they made him leave us to go follow them you know these worthless good for nothings who don't have a job who are you know parasites you know on society by wandering from door to door asking you know they don't ask for alms but they wait to see if somebody brings them on you know they're just parasites on society and so as, you know, Ratnapala came and stood there and for alms, you know, he didn't receive any alms. He was refused alms. And he didn't receive even a polite refusal. It wasn't like, like his, you know, a family said, oh, we wish we could offer you food, but we don't have very much. You know, it wasn't like that. But all he got was abuse, you know, from his own father 
who didn't even recognize him. You know, and just said, these are crummy people who, you know, took my son from me. So just then, so, you know, father's has his own trip going on. So Rakhapala starts to walk away. So there's a slave woman in the house. Because remember, he comes from an upper class family. So the slave woman um, uh, was about to throw away some old porridge. And seeing this, Ratnapala said to her, um, if that's stuff that you're going to throw away, you can just throw it here into my bowl if you want. And so she came and she put the porridge into his bowl. As she was doing that, she recognized his hands and his feet and his voice. Because remember, she was the slave, the servant of the household, for many years before she knew, you know, the, the son, the inheritor's voice and what his hands looked like and his feet looked like. So she recognized him. So then she went to his mother and said, you know, please know, my lady, that my lord's son, Ratnapala, has arrived. So the mother says, Gracious, if what you say is true, you are no longer a slave. I mean, the mother is just ecstatic. Yeah, you know, off the moon. And so the mother goes to the father and says, Our son's come back. He's come back. And so just at that time, you know, Venerable Ratnapala was eating the old porridge, sitting by the wall of a certain shelter. And his father went, to, went there and said, Ratnapala, my dear, surely there is... The father was like so overcome looking at his son, who of course has lost weight, looks 12 years older, eating this old garbage porridge that they were going to throw out, sitting on the ground, you know, near a wall. You know, when the father, I mean, what, what does he want for his kid? You know, come sit on the sofa and the slave lady will bring you food and you can, you know, live in luxury. And, and, uh, and the father just gets completely choked up, you know. And, uh, and he, he can't finish his sentence. And he says, you know, and you're just eating old porridge, you know. Is there not your own house to go to? It's like, why are you doing this? You, you know, come back home. Yeah, we'll feed you. And, um, and uh, Ratnapala says, how could we have a house householder when we have gone forth from the home life into homelessness? We are homeless householder. We went, because apparently he was with some other monks. He said, we went to your house, but we received neither alms nor a polite refusal there. Instead, we received only abuse. So he just said it straight to his father what happened. And the father says, Come, dear Ratnapala, let us go to the house. Come on home, for goodness sake. You know? And Ratnapala says, Enough, householder, my, my meal for, the, for today is finished. So he had eaten his meal. You know, after midday, you're not allowed to eat. No sense going to his father's house to hang out, you know, and eat because he's done eating and he wants to go back out into the park and do his meditation for the day. Um, And so then his father says, Then, dear Ratnapala, consent to accept tomorrow's meal. 
Okay, so at least come tomorrow. We'll feed you tomorrow. Okay, so Ratnapala accepted. So then, uh, knowing that this, that Ratnapala had accepted, the father went back into his house and he brought out all the gold coins and he brought all, all the gold bullion and he made a huge, large heap and covered it with mats. Okay? So he brought out the, you know, the Bank of America checkbook and the Coeur d'Alene Bank checkbook and he brought out the CD papers and the 401k papers and all the stock sheets and he brought out, you know, like all these hundred dollar bills and he brought out, you know, the, the gold and silver and the family's inheritance and the mother's jewelry and, you know, passed down in the family and you know, the antique, this and that, and like everything of value in the family. And the father just had it put there right in the living room, okay? Not only that, then he went to Ratnapala's former wives. Because remember in ancient India, you know, you could have several wives. And he said to all these wives, he said, okay, come daughters-in-law, adorn yourself with ornaments in the way Ratnapala found you most dear and lovable. So, you know, come on, deck yourself out. We will give you whatever you need to make yourself look gorgeous. And you just come home and, you know, you come to our house and you seduce him. Call him back home. Okay? So, his father had an agenda going on here. (laughs) When he invited him to come home. He had an agenda. So... Then, uh, and then Ratnapala's father had good food of various kinds prepared in his own house. Yeah, so he had the cooks make the, the, you know, it's like Ratnapala likes pizza, 10 varieties of pizza. You know, he likes ice cream, 15 varieties of ice cream. Anything his son wanted, he knew the foods he liked, so much of it. You know, he's going to feed him with the opulence saying come home and you can eat like this all the time okay and here are your wives and here's the money and here's the comfort of the house and here's mom and dad who love you to bits you know just come home okay and so Ratnapala he came then you know to tell Ratnapala the, the meal was ready the next morning and he says time dear Ratnapala the meal is ready so then Ratnapala, you know, dressed, he put on his outer robe and took his, his bowl and he went to his father's house and sat down on the seat that was made for him. And his father had the pile of gold coins and the bullion uncovered and said, Dear Ratnapala, this is your maternal fortune. Your paternal fortune is another and your ancestral fortune is a nut yet another. Dear Ratnapala, you can enjoy the wealth and make merit. Yeah. Come then, dear. Abandon the training and return to the low life. Enjoy the wealth and make merit. It's like you've done this for long enough. Didn't, haven't you gotten it out of, you know, out of your blood yet? You know, you've done it. Just come home, be a householder, enjoy the wealth. You can give the wealth to... You know, these bald-pated recluses who we don't like. But, you know, just come home and make merit. You can support them. 
Um, and Ratnapala said, Householder. You know, he didn't say dad. He said, Householder. Yeah. If you would follow my advice, then you would have this pile of gold coins and bullion loaded onto carts and carried away to be dumped midstream in the river Ganges. <laughs> Why is that? Because, householder, on account of this, there will arise for you sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. In other words, he's saying to his father, you are so attached to your wealth, you know, and in order to get the wealth you've had by attachment, you've had to do so many negative actions, and to protect your wealth, you've done so much, so many negative actions, and this karma is going to ripen in a future life for you, Dad, and you're going to have sorrow, grief, lamentation, and torment. You know, so don't be attached to this. If you're attached to it, get rid of it because that attachment and everything you do to protect it and defend it and how jealous you get of other people who have more and how angry you get at the people who are trying to cheat you out of it and the whole thing, it's just not worth it. Okay, so that's what he says to his dad. Okay. <laughs> then, okay, his wives come. Okay, and his former wives, they're all decked out. They're gorgeous. They have all kinds of perfumes and the finest jewelry. And, you know, Indi- these Indian saris are beautiful material. You know, and they're hair braided in this right way and garlands and the whole thing. And they all come and they clasp his feet and they say, What are they like, my lord, sons, the nymphs for whose sake you lead the holy life? In other words, you know, you're leaving this holy life to create some good karma so in your future life you can have, you know, be born in the God realm where there's all these gorgeous women and, you know, and just live it up in your future life. And that's why you're being so ascetic this life. That's what his wives are saying to him. And, and he says, we do not live the holy life for the sake of nymph sisters. And then the wives look and they say, Our Lord's son, Ratnapala, called us sisters, they cried. And right there they fainted. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Because here these women, you know, and like, you know, raised their whole purpose in life is to be a sex object and get the men to love them. And the father's counting on them to get the, the, the son to be attracted and come home. And what does he do is he calls them sisters. You know, what an insult. What a total insult. They failed. They weren't gorgeous. They weren't sexy enough. Something's wrong with them. And they fainted. <laughs> you know, like that. They passed out. <laughs> okay. I'm going longer than expected. Do you want me to continue? Yeah? (laughs) There's still more. Yeah? Okay. Um, And then uh, Ratnapala said to his father, Householder, if there's a meal to be given, then give it. Do not harass us. (laughs) (laughs) 
But Dad, enough is enough. If you're going to feed us, feed us. If you're not, you know, let us go on our way. Okay. And then with his own hands, you know, because his father did have some respect. The Venerable Ratnapala's father served and satisfied him with the various kinds of good food. And when the Venerable Ratnapala had eaten and had withdrawn his hand from the bowl, he stood up and he uttered these stanzas. And it was a tradition that when people made food offering to you, okay, then you reciprocated their kindness by speaking the Dharma or giving them some advice that would help them in their life. So remember I was saying yesterday this is the reciprocal kind of relationship between the lay people and the Sangha. So here Ratnapala is. He's going to say something to his mother and father in the attempts to benefit them. So he says, Behold a puppet here pranked out. Okay? And here he's referring to his wives. Yeah, they're all dressed up. A body built up out of sores, sick, an object for concern, where no stability abides. Behold a figure here, all decked out, with jewelry and earrings too. A skeleton wrapped up in skin, made attractive by its clothes. Its feet adorned with henna dye and powder smeared upon its face. It may beguile a fool, but not a seeker of the further shore. Okay, so he's saying, look, you know, the human body is blood and guts, and it produces poop and pee and sweat and bad breath, and, you know, what are you trying to seduce me with? You know, you're decorating it in this beautiful way, but, you know, I'm not interested in sex because, you know, this is what the body is, so don't, you know... So then he, he goes on and, and talks more about just how, you know, like why are you hanging on to a body and it's made of pus and blood and guts and why are you trying to, you know, get me turned on by decking these women out when, you know, this is what their body is. I'm just not interested. He said his last verse to his father was, The deer hunter set out the snare, but the deer did not spring the trap. We ate the bait and now we depart, leaving the hunters to lament. <laughs> okay. So then Ratnapala got up and then he went to the king's garden and he sat down at the root of the tree for the day's abiding. Because the day's abiding meant doing your meditation practice or if other people came to discuss the Dharma with you or ask for advice and you were there to, to greet them and relate to them in a Dharma way. Okay. So, so, the, so he's sitting in the, in the king's forest. So then the king, you know, says to his gamekeeper, good gamekeeper, tidy up the garden so that we may go to the pleasure grove and see a pleasing spot. So it just happens that this afternoon this ki- the king wants to go out and, you know, make merry in the park. Um, and so the, ga- the gatekeeper goes to clean up the garden before this. And he sees Ratnapala seated at the root of the tree, meditating. And when he saw him, he went back to the king. And he said, Sire, 
Uh, the garden has been tidied up. But the clansman, not Napala, is there. He's the son of the leading clan in this same town, um, of whom you have always spoken highly. So the king had always spoken highly of Ratnapala because he knew that Ratnapala had left home and gone into the homeless life with a sincere wish to practice the Dharma. And, he, and the king admired that. And he could probably admire it because Ratnapala wasn't his kid. You know, if it was his own kid, he would have probably done exactly what Ratnapala's family did. Okay? But the king admired him. So then he said, okay, he said to us it's okay, instead of going to have a good time in the garden, we're going to go and pay our, our respects to Master Ratnapala. So he, um, he then said, give away, the king said, give away all the food that's been prepared there. Yeah, so he's making generosity. But then he also had prepared a number of state carriages and mounting one of them, accompanied by the other carriages, he drove out from the town with the full pomp of royalty to see the venerable Ratnapala. And so he drove as far as the road would go, and then he got down, and he had to walk into the garden. Okay? And uh, he had a whole entourage with all of the eminent officials, and so they all go, or they're going to see Ratnapala, who's you know, wearing his yellow robes and shaved head and has a bowl and a, you know, rag robes and sitting there at the root of the tree. And so he exchanged greetings with Ratnapala and they had some courteous talk and then he sat down um, and he offered Ratnapala an elephant rug, you know, high class. And, uh, and Ratnapala says, oh, there's no need, King. I'm sitting on my own mat, you know like elephants, gnats, you know, kind of luxury, you know, this doesn't appeal to me. Okay, so then um, the king says to him, Ratnapala, there are four kinds of loss. Because they have undergone these four kinds of loss, some people here shave off their heads and beard, put on their yellow robe, and go forth from the home life into the homeless. What are the four? They are lost through aging, loss through sickness, loss of wealth, and loss of relatives. So the king is saying that, you know, there's four kinds of loss, and there's some people who go forth, you know, and become ordained to practice the dharma because they've experienced one or more of these four kinds of loss. So, what's the loss of aging? Okay, so what, you know, the loss of the aging. Someone is old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage. And he considers thus, I am old, aged, burdened with years, advanced with life, come to the last stage. It's no longer easy for me to acquire unacquired wealth or to augment wealth already acquired. You know, I, ha- I can't get more wealth because I'm too old to work. Yeah, and, you know, the, 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 my Social Security, they're not paying me as much as I, they're supposed to be paying me. And, you know, I have my rent to pay in this apartment, and I can't get any more wealth, and my Social Security's not coming for through. And my 401k, you know, who was it? You know, that CEO stole it. And, um, 
you know, that path. And I don't have any wealth and I don't have a place to live. So suppose I shave off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and go forth from home into homelessness. Okay? So the king can, you know, that's why some people are dating. They can't get more wealth. They're old. They want to live with some other people, have free house, as Bob Lutzman calls it, the free lunch club. You know, you wear your robe, somebody will give you lunch. Um, you're old, there's going to be people who take care of you in the Sangha. Yeah, you're going to get some medicine because you're, you know, you're old. And so I want to, you know, ordain because of that. Good motivation? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Uh, so the king says, you know, describes this and says, but Ratnapala is now still young, a black-haired young man, endowed with the blessing of youth in the prime of life. Master Ratnapala has not undergone any loss through aging. What has he known or seen or heard that has that he has gone forth from the home life into the homeless? Like, you know, you're not suffering from aging. That isn't your reason for ordaining. What in the world got into you, kid, that you're doing this? What did you see, hear, or think about that you're taking this this radical step? And then the king continues on and he says, he goes on to the second kind of loss, the loss from sickness. Okay? He says, here somebody is afflicted, suffering, and gravely ill. He considers thus, I am afflicted, suffering, and gravely ill. It is no longer easy for me to acquire wealth, you know, and I'm sick and I'm tormented and my kids aren't around to take care of me after I brought them up with so much kindness. They walked out and they, you know, moved across the country, the good-for-nothing kids, and now I'm sick and, you know, nobody's here and I think I'll ordain because then I'll get some medicine, the sangha will take care of me. Might as well. Nothing to lose because I'm sick anyway. Good motivation? No. Okay. And um, But people did it, or they tried to do it, until the Buddha set up a, a rule that, that you can't do that. Uh, but the king says, but Master Ratnapala is now free from illness and affliction. He possesses a good digestion that is neither too cool nor too warm, but medium Master Ratnapala has not undergone any loss through sickness. What has he seen? What has he known or seen or heard that he has gone forth from home life into homelessness? Now, what's up with you? Okay, and then the king continues. What's the loss of wealth? Third kind of loss. Okay, so here's somebody's rich of great wealth, great possessions, but gradually his wealth dwindles away. And he considers thus, formerly I was rich of great wealth, of great possessions. You know, I had stocks and Microsoft. I had, you know, I bought them before when Microsoft was a baby company and they went up. But now, you know, the stock's not doing so good. And, you know, my pension plan didn't work out. And, you know, the bank collapsed and my wealth, you know, somebody else came in the house and stole it and they cheated me out of the money and I worked so hard my entire life to get all this wealth and I lost it. You know, the stock market crashed. And, you know, we all know that some people even committed suicide, 
you know, a few years ago, remember when the stock market went down? They committed suicide. So, you know, somebody's desperate and like this. So they think, well, might as well ordain, you know? Get taken care of, free lunch come, no problem. Uh, but, the, but the king says, but, you know, this isn't your situation, Ratnapala. You haven't lost all your wealth. You know, your, your family has all this wealth. It's all yours for the taking. So what, what happened? Why are you so interested in ordaining? And then the fourth kind of loss, the loss of relatives. So the king says, Here, Master Ratnapala, somebody has many friends and companions, kinsmen and relatives. Okay, gradually those relatives of his dwindle away. Okay. So, you know, you're married and you have your kids and you have your work partners and you have your golf buddies and you have your football buddies and you have your mowing the lawn buddies and you have your dharma buddies because you spent your life, you know, kind of making merit. And you have your dharma buddies and you have all these friends and relatives and... You know, they die, they move out of state, you know, they get picky and don't like you anymore, and, you know, your wife leaves for a younger man, and, you know, your kids have, you know, said bye, cops, you know, <laughs> you aren't giving us any more money finished with you. Um, they don't come home anymore because they finally learn to do their own laundry. So, you know, you don't have any, your, your kids, your, you know, everybody's gone. And so some people are ordain, and so or they want to ordain. And so the king says, but Ratnapala, that's not your situation. You know, you had wives, you had family, you had everything there. So why did you leave all of this to go into the homeless life? And so then Ratnapala replies, um, there are four summaries of the Dharma that have been taught by the Blessed One who knows and sees, accomplished and fully enlightened. Okay, knowing and seeing and hearing them, I went forth from the home life into homelessness. What are the four? Okay, so now he's going to talk about four reasons that he heard from the Buddha that he thought about, he heard, he thought about, they made sense to him, he, it wasn't an emotional kind of reaction of I've got to go do this, but he really thought about these things at the time and they were really, you know, part of his life. And these are the reasons why he ordained. So this is what he explains to the king. Life in any world is unstable, it is swept away. In other words, it's everything is in the process of decaying yeah as soon as something comes together it's in the process of separating as soon as something arises it's in the process of decaying so life in any world is unstable it is swept away by impermanence this is the first summary of the dharma taught by the blessed one who knows and sees okay life in any world has no shelter no protector the second one life in any world has nothing of its own one has to leave all and pass on it's the third one and the fourth is life in any world is incomplete insatiate the slave of craving so he said these are the four 
on that whose account I had gone you know from home into homelessness and now he's going to give some explanation of what these four are so he says what do you think great king when you were 20 or 25 years old were you an expert rider of elephants an expert horseman an expert charioteer an expert archer an expert swordsman strong in thighs and arms sturdy and capable in battle okay in other words you know I, were you macho man when you were 20, 25 years old and you were strong and healthy and you know you could play football you could do the whole thing and the master says and the king said yes you know I, that's what I was when I was 20, 25 and then Ratnapala says well what do you think great king are you now as strong as you were then king says mm-mm I'm old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life. Come to the last stage. My years have turned 80. Sometimes I mean to put my foot here, and I put my foot somewhere else. Okay? Sometimes I intend to say one thing, but my mind is forgetful, and I can't remember what I'm saying. Sometimes I'm trying to walk, but I stumble. Sometimes I'm adding numbers, and two plus two comes out as six, because I'm not with it, you know. I was strong and sturdy and intelligent and with it when I was young, but, you know, I was fortunate to live until 80, but, you know, the cost of living to 80 is that you're old and your physical and mental capabilities decline and there's no way to get around it so that's what the king says back to Ratnapala and Ratnapala says great king it was was on account of this that the blessed one who knows and sees accomplished and fully enlightened said life in any world is unstable it is swept away and when I knew and saw and heard this, I went forth from the home life into homelessness. So he's saying, you know, this is one of the reasons. Because I knew, you know, Ratnapala was young. I knew that, you know, everything's great when I'm young. But the only way you go from here is downhill. You know, your physical strength declines. Your mental strength declines. You're going towards old age. You wind up old if you're fortunate to live that long. And what's the purpose of it all? That's the purpose. Okay, it's the end of your life. That's the kind of body you might have. What's the purpose? You know, what good is being young and strong and and being macho man and having the whole you know sense pleasure trip if that's what ultimately happens? You know. And the king um, says it's wonderful, Ratnapala. It is marvelous how well that has been expressed by the blessed one. You know who knows and sees accomplished and fully enlightened life in any world is unstable it is swept away it is indeed so so it makes sense to the king Mm -hmm. then the king says um, so then the king says to Ratnapala there exists, Master Ratnapala, there exists in this court elephant troops and cavalry 
and chariot troops and infantry which will serve to subdue any threats to us now Master Ratnapala said life in any world has no shelter and no protector how should the meaning of that statement be understood in other words what are you talking about we have lots of protection yeah we have our missile system that's you know preventing the Russians from bombing us we're developing another one so the North Koreans can't bomb us we have all our you know Army, Navy, Marine Corps Air Force and everybody you know to defend us there's lots of refuge there's lots of protection yeah so, so what do you mean that life in any world has no shelter and no protector King's asking Ratnapala so Ratnapala said um, what do you think great king do you have any chronic ailment and the king says yes I have a chronic wind ailment you know in ancient medicine you had uh, wind, bile and uh, phlegm those are three kind of categories of ailments so he says I have a wind ailment and sometimes my friends and companions kinsmen and relatives stand around me thinking now the king is about to die now the king is about to die okay so he's sick he's, everybody's worried about him they all stand around and they're worried because he's going to die and Ratnapala says great king can you command your friends and companions your kinsmen and relatives come my good friends and companions my kinsmen and relatives all of you present share this painful feeling so that I may feel less pain less pain or do you have to feel that pain yourself alone so he's saying you know you're, die, you're sick you're miserable all your relatives and friends are there they love you dearly can you say to them please take some of my suffering and can they take your suffering away from them away from you no matter how much you hurt no matter how miserable you are you know even if you have mental unhappiness can somebody else take that away from you if, you, if you're physically sick can somebody else take that pain away from you or do you have to experience it alone and the king says I cannot command my friends and companions my kinsmen and relatives thus Master Ratnapala I have to feel that pain alone Ratnapala says great king it was on account of this that the blessed one who knows and sees accomplished and fully enlightened said life in any world has no shelter and no protector and when I knew and saw and heard this I went forth from, went forth from home life into homelessness Okay, so he's saying yeah I realize that no matter how many people love me no matter how many people are dear to me and no matter how much they want me to live no matter how much they gather around me and hold my hand and cry and sob and want me to be well and happy they have absolutely no power to make that happen you know I'm on my own when it comes to mental and physical suffering I go through it alone you know? and so Ratnapala is saying I saw that and I saw that you know this was a disadvantage of psychic existence and I wanted 
you know, a real refuge because my friends and family cannot provide that kind of refuge. They can't do that. What is a real refuge for me? How am I really going to deal with pain and sickness when it comes in my life? And Ratnapala figured out that the best way, you know, to deal with it was to tame his mind right then and there and take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And that if he did that and practiced the Dharma and integrated the Dharma in his mind, then when sickness and aging came, he would have some real refuge. Okay? And he saw that it wasn't just, you know, having some refuge to ease the pain of, of old age and sickness. That's not the reason he was practicing the Dharma. But he wanted out of this whole thing of psychic existence altogether. He wasn't just trying to tweak his samsara and take refuge so that he didn't have so much pain when he was old and sick. It was like, you know, Ramapala wanted to get out of samsara, finished, enough, I don't want any more lives where I have to go through this cycle again and again and again. Okay. Then the third, the third uh, one. The king says, Master Ratnapala, there exists in this court abundant gold coins and bullions stored away in vaults and depositories. Now Ratnapala said, life in any world has nothing of its own. One has to leave all and pass on. How should the meaning of that statement be understood? And Ratnapala says, what do you think, great king? You now enjoy yourself provided and endowed with the, you know, the five cords of sensual pleasure. You have beautiful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and tactile situations. But will you be able to have it of the life to come? Okay. In other words, can in the future life, let me likewise enjoy myself provided and endowed with these same five uh, cords of sense pleasure. Or will others take over this property while you ha- will have to pass on according to your actions? So, the king, so Ratnapala is saying to him, you have all this wealth and you're enjoying it, but can you take it with you? Yeah, when you die, does all this wealth, wealth benefit you? Don't a beggar and a rich person die in the same way? You know, wealth doesn't ensure that you're going to die any easier. And can you take any of that wealth with you into the future lives? Or will everybody who's here, you know, who remains after you die, just take your property, take all your property and you have to leave? So you've spent your whole life working for financial security, trying to get enough money so you finally feel financially secure. You've never, um, you know, been able to do that. And we see that, you know, I mean, who do we know who feels financially secure? Nobody, everybody, no matter how many millions of dollars they have, they never feel secure. They want some more. So you spend your whole life working for financial security. At the time when you die, it doesn't matter how much money you have. No, because everybody dies alike. You know, except, you know, maybe if you're rich, your sheets are a little bit cleaner when you're dying. But, you know, I mean, who cares? Because your death is your own internal experience and you have to die and pass on and take rebirth according to your karma. So you've spent your whole life working for financial security, never succeeded in getting it. You're dying, you're leaving it all behind and what you have is all the imprints of the actions you did to get and protect all that wealth. 
Okay, answer the king says, I cannot have it thus of the life to come, Master Paula, Ratnapala. On the contrary, others will take this over, you know. And so Ratnapala says, well, that's, you know, because of this. The Blessed One said, life in any world has nothing of its own. One has to leave all, all and pass on. Okay. Then the fourth thing, and after each one of these, the king is saying, wow, that's really true. The Buddha really knew what he was saying. So the king is really realizing the truth of what Ratnapala is saying. Then the king asks, Ratnapala, you said life in any world is incomplete, insatiate, the slave of craving. How should the meaning of that statement be understood? And Ratnapala said, what do you think, great king? Do you reign over the rich Kuru country? The king says, yes. What do you think, great king? Suppose a trustworthy and reliable man came to you from the east and said, please know, great king, that I have come from the east, and there I saw a large country, powerful and rich, populous and crowded with people. There are plenty of elephant troops. There are plenty of cavalry, chariot troops, and infantry. There is plenty of ivory there and plenty of gold coins and bullion, both unworked and worked, and plenty of women for wives. With your present forces, you can conquer it. Conquer it, then, great king. What would you do? So the king says, we would conquer it and reign over it. You know, it's a wealthy place. It has all these ornaments. There's a women galore and all this wealth. And we have the capability to conquer it. We'll go do it. And then uh, we'll conquer that land in the east. And then Ratnapala says, well, suppose somebody came from the west and said that there was a land in the west like that. Well, Well, we would conquer it. And suppose somebody came from the north and said there was a land like that. Well, we conquered that one too. Suppose somebody came from the south and said there was a land. Yeah, we conquered that one too. Okay. And so, and so then Ratnapala says, well, great king, it was a count of, on that that the Blessed One said that life in any world is incomplete and satiate the slave of craving. You know? In other words, however much you get, you're never satisfied. Yeah, you know, you want this much wealth, and it's not, you know, you're never satisfied. You want so many relationships, and you're never satisfied. You want so much sense pleasure, you're never satisfied with whatever you get, you know. And so the Buddha explained that, and and um, and Ratnapala says, you know, I knew and saw this and heard it, and that's why I went from home into homeless life. You know, because I saw the defects of cyclic existence and I saw that wherever I was born in cyclic existence, the best thing would be that it would be a rerun of what I have now. So why do that? You know, if there's so many disadvantages and shortcomings in this life and this is a good life, why would I keep on getting reborn and reborn only having reruns? And that's the best I could think to experience and the worst if, you know, then you have the lower realms and all of this other stuff. So he's saying, you know, I saw the faults of samsara and I just decided, you know, I've got to uproot the, uproot the cause of samsara. 
You know, I've got to eliminate the ignorance that gives rise to the craving, that gives rise to the hostility, that gives rise to the karma, you know. And I've got to stop this. And that's why I left home to go into homeless life. Because if I have monastic vows, I'm going to be living in pure ethical conduct, so I'm not going to be creating negative karma. I'm going to be creating positive karma. On the basis of having positive karma, my mind will be much more ripe and much more fertile. I'll be able to gain realizations. Also, by, by practicing pure ethical conduct, my mindfulness and mental alertness is going to increase. Those two mental factors will, will enable me to develop concentration, which will help me develop wisdom, you know. And so he's saying that, you know, there's only benefits for, for him in the long term for, for leaving the householder life and practice because there's so many benefits that accrue from keeping pure morality. And so the king, again, is rejoicing, you know, saying how, how um, wonderful that is. So that's what Venerable Ratnapala said. And then to conclude the sutra and conclude the conversation with the king, um, Ratnapala said some more verses. And I'll, I'll read the whole thing to you because it's, it's quite nice. So Ratnapala said, I see men wealthy in the world who yet from ignorance give not their gathered wealth. Greedily they hoard away their riches, longing still for further sensual pleasures. A king who has conquered the earth by force and rules over the land, the ocean bounds, is yet unsated with the sea's near shore and hungers for its further shore as well, always wanting more and better. Most other people too, not just a king, encounter death with craving unabated. With plans still incomplete, they leave the corpse. Desires remain unsated in the world. His relatives lament and rend their hair, crying, Oh me, alas, our love is dead. They bear away the body, wrapped in shrouds, to place it on a fire and burn it there. Clad in a shroud, he leaves his wealth behind. Prodded with stakes, he burns upon the, the fire. Because when a funeral pyre burns, they, they have to keep with the stakes, you know, moving your body and to make sure the whole body burns. And as he dies, no friends or relatives can offer him shelter and refuge here. While his heirs take over his wealth, this being must pass on according to his karma. And as he dies, nothing can follow him, not child nor wife, nor wealth, nor royal estate. Longevity is not acquired with wealth, nor can prosperity banish old age. Short is this life, as all the sages say. Eternity it knows not, only change. The rich and poor alike shall feel death's touch. The fool and sage as well shall feel it too. But while the fool lies stricken by his folly, no stage will ever tremble at the touch. So if you practice well in this life and you generate realizations, 
death is no longer to be feared. Better is wisdom here than any wealth, since by wisdom one gains the final goal. For people through ignorance do evil deeds while failing to reach the goal from life to life. As one goes to the womb in the next world, renewing the successive round of births, another of little wisdom trusting him goes also to the womb in the next world. Just as a robber caught in burglary is made to suffer for his evil deed, so people after death in the next world are led to suffer for their evil deeds. Sensual pleasures, varied, sweet, delightful, in many different ways disturb the mind. Seeing the danger in these sensual ties, I chose to lead the homeless life, O King. As fruits fall from the tree, so people too, both young and old, fall when this body breaks. Seeing this too, O King, I have gone forth. Better is the recluse's life assured. So we see that, you know, Ratnapala had, you know, incredibly pure motivation and he really understood the Dharma. He didn't shirk at all from looking very squarely at what uh, samsara was. And yet when he saw samsara, he didn't react with panic. He didn't go, ah, I'm going to die. This is terrible. You know, he didn't go into any kind of anything like that. He just saw things for what they were. And he said, this is what it is. This is what happens if I continue to do this. I don't want that. There's a way to cut it off. And that's the direction I'm going in. Yeah. So he did it all with wisdom. You know, it wasn't emotional freak out. It wasn't telling himself, I should renounce. Everything's impermanent. I should give it up. But even though I don't want to because I'm so attached, what kind of horrible person am I that I can't give this up? I'm so attached to it. How am I ever going to be a Dharma practitioner? You know, he didn't do that. (laughs) Okay. He just saw things for what they were and said, I'm going in a different direction here. Yeah, and he did it without any regrets, without any trips, and he attained the final goal, and he was liberated. Okay, so this is showing us, you know, something about the type of motivation and also the type of clarity of mind that we have to have to live that motivation you know because his parents were certainly trying to dissuade him you know they did everything in their power to dissuade him so he needed to have that clarity of mind otherwise what his parents were saying would have made sense and he would have chucked the whole thing yeah so you see you know his motivation really came through repeatedly thinking about this, contemplating it, making the understanding his own. It wasn't through a bunch of shoulds. And so in the same way, we have to like repeatedly contemplate and make the understanding something that's really in our hearts. 
Okay, now we understand it on an intellectual level. It's not going to go from our heads to our hearts unless we put in some effort and reflect on it and make examples from our lives. But when we're reflecting on it, we can't do it with a mind that's saying should, 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 this and that. We have to do it just with a clear, calm mind looking at what the situation is. Okay? And then just, you know, meditate on this, really think about what the Buddha said, take it to heart, make it your own, and then when you have that clarity in your own mind, there's no decision to make. Yeah? And you don't have to pull your hair out saying, shall I ordain or not ordain? What should I do? I don't know what to do with my life. You know, should I get married? Should I ordain? You know, you don't go through this, you know. It's just by cultivating the, the motivation. It's like, it's what I want to do. Let's go for it. So we ran quite a bit over. <laughs> yeah.